What's going on, guys? This is Nick. This is Sean. And this is episode three of the Unified Strength Method podcast. Today is one of my close buddies, David Shipo. She's a power lifter and sports psychologist. Really cool combo. Yeah, David is uh, from Hungary. He's working on his thesis uh, in sports. Sports psychology here, focusing on powerlifters and their performance. Uh, we got into depth with him today about a couple things he actually specializes in with coaching individuals, including mindfulness, you know, skill versus challenge, anxiety, preparation for a meet, ways to handle all that, and also ways to manage and get into what is now becoming very popular, the flow state. Yeah, being able to set some boundaries, access, and tap into that flow state whenever you need. And there's some tools, there's some yeah, some cognitive behavioral mechanisms that he goes over. We've got a couple different videos that, and things that are going to be linked up on our site. You can check those out. Uh, really, guys, this is probably going to be one of the more, uh, maybe not touchy-feely, but uh, psychological podcasts we do. It is a sports psychologist. It should give you some insight into the mindset of uh, where you need to be to be a champion powerlifter or also just to set firm boundaries to manage powerlifting and being a competitive athlete with your everyday life. Just Overall, a really great guy. He just wants to be here to educate people and help them capitalize on a personal and professional level. All right. See you guys in there. You're going to do an internship at gym, right? And you wanted a separate place to train and we just got into philosophy and it turned into psychology and it was just a really neat relationship. We ended up yeah. keeping in touch. It's been, you know, three, four years now. It, it was fun. I'm so glad that we kept in touch. You just competed at Hungarian nationals too. Yeah. Like three weeks ago and it was yeah. the best competition of my life so far. That's awesome. What did you end up uh, totaling? Well, I don't know the pounds, but I do know the kilos. If someone's interested, you can. Oh, yeah. 197.5. So only 2.5 off of my 200 kilo total. It was awesome because I'm hungrier than ever to squat more than 200 kilos because I know that it's already in me. Bench was 130. That's nothing to talk about, but it is what it is. And deadlifted to 45 it's like around like right around 530 if i'm spitballing the math yeah yeah it was enough for fourth place and the third guy was only five or seven kilos ahead of me at nationals too right yeah that's i mean that's impressive man thank you competing against your whole country for for powerlifting i mean Unfortunately, in the U.S., like nationals doesn't seem to be the same kind of a, a thing for us. But I know in a lot of like uh, European and even like in Canada, it's a bigger deal too. For the U.S., people, I don't know why people don't compete at nationals more. They, it seems like it's only like certain federate. Maybe it's because there's so many federations yeah. in, in the U.S. that it gets split up. But. Well, for us Hungarians, it's like a festival, a real celebration of powerlifting, like. 200 people gather around and compete for two, three days. Men, women of all ages and weight classes cheering for each other. I think it's awesome. It's what powerlifting should be all about. Yeah, no, uh, no yelling and uh, no divisive competition. Just everybody supporting everyone yeah, being strong. The sport is for everyone. And yeah. you're mostly competing against yourself because only one out of 
a hundred people is at an European or even world class level. So it's mostly a super hobby for everyone that's competing. Yeah. I think that is an interesting thing too. That's a, that's, that's something that, I mean, as you know, my background was psychology, you're a sports psychologist. That's a big frame of mind change that we try to give people a lot of times when they, they come into the gym, like, I want to be the best in the world. I want to be, you know, number one, I want to be the strongest person ever. And it's like, well, that's not going to pay any of your bills or, you know, get you through college or put food in your mouth anytime soon. Like maybe we should reframe expectations and maybe you should just try to be the strongest person in your weight class at your gym to start, or maybe, you know, start with something like objective kind of metric. I don't know. Is that something that you go over with people a lot of times is like changing mindset as far as for their expectations and just switching them or? Sure. That's a topic that often comes up, especially with people who were like national champions or even went to Europeans as teenagers or while they were in college. But after that, they got to find a job. They don't have as much time to dedicate to training and they have to change their mindset to be like the top 10 or top five or top three in the country versus best in the world. And that's all there is to it because at the end of the day, you should only compare yourself to come to yourself, basically. And if that comes out on top of others' performance, say on a world level, then so be it. But it's not given. Like nothing is given. And I think is a really great metaphor for life in itself because you only get what you work for. But there are many confounding factors like genetics equipment judges stuff like that and that goes yeah. on setting realistic expectations of your performance and one of the things i find a lot of times with powerlifters, because uh, you, you touched on it a little bit is like taking ownership of what factors you are in control of right like you you are only in control of how you train and how you eat and sleep but i've found a lot of people in powerlifting are on one of two sides of that. They're either one of two polar opposites in that they either completely believe everything's within my control. If I do all of this, I'm going to always win. I'm going to always succeed. And there's other people, and it's like an extrinsic locus of blame. They say, well, the judging was crap at this meet. The hotel I stayed at was terrible, which sometimes they are. I, I you know, just couldn't get tight in this rack. They changed the bar on me, you know on my last lift. How do you calibrate people to like a, a manageable balance between those two? Is there something you found a lot of success with with that? Or is it just, is it talking it out with people? Well, I think that it really counts to pinpoint those factors that you have total control of. So if you live in an area where there's no IPF bar or no calibrated Elico plates or stuff like that, then that can bring you out of balance com competition. But that's such a small factor compared to your overall mindset of the sport that if you put too much effort onto the too little stuff, then you will get overwhelmed. So I always see this in an, at an individual level. Where can they train? Is there a realistic expectation? And can they even go to the venue a day before or two before just to get familiarized or not. And if they can, 
then we will build that up into their ritual. If they can't, then we will focus on other things like nutrition, sleep, or a training partner that's coming with you and is always with you as a general rule of thumb. So I would say it's definitely individualized, but focus on what you can control and there's just don't stress the rest, but there's no universal truth to everyone's routine. Right. So you would wager that, I mean, we've talked about this before, like in your, in your seminar, you mentioned like a ritual or a routine. One of the things I kind of wanted you to go over was like, we talked about that, like even just like small factors you are in control of, of yourself that most people don't recognize. Like people think it's all about controlling, oh, I did this many sets and reps. I did, I ate this much chicken today. I, I slept this many hours, but it's even more nuanced than that. It's, like but you talk about a lot of mindfulness, right? Like, so I was wondering, like, how would you take somebody completely novel to the, the sport and get them in the right mindset to like start implementing those things? What's like, what's a way to kind of ease people into that? You think? Thanks for the interesting question. I always assess the individual. If they have problems with self-talk, they say that they sleep enough, they eat well, they do all their sets, and something's still not clicking then we try to find those points of failure and oftentimes it's in their mind like as i've said before it's how you talk with yourself during those properly executed sets that can set you apart from a champion's mindset to a loser's mindset because if you view the sport or the sets that that is something i have to do no matter what that's quite different than something like i know it's gonna be hard but I'm going to do it anyway because that will contribute to my success. Many people don't like doing fives or six or eights. However, it will contribute to their progress because that will elicit a hypertrophy response versus like a one rep max, which is all fun. But if you only do one rep maxes, you're not going to progress as fast or your nervous system will get fatigued. And how you view those fives or six or eights can really alter your mindset because that way if you embrace that you're gonna enjoy the journey and not just waiting for the one rep maxes as your salvation i think it's like reframing contextually in your mind like uh looking at training not so much as a burden or a means to an end but like it's an opportunity like an yeah. opportunity for success sure that's the point and especially in times like these if you have months where you cannot train due to a global pandemic, then you should be really grateful that when the time finally comes and you're touching a weight and you're doing fives because you don't want to hurt yourself with testing your one rep max right away, then that will give you a real sense of truth in terms of embracing different parts or phases of training. You get into like the nuance of like people like even in in between individual sets and reps, like not even just session to session, how they intake it. Like, because I know we talked about having a routine and your setup and you kind of speak to yourself. Do you start everybody the same way as far as like, just not even like giving them the same ritual, but trying to get everybody to calibrate to like, you should have some routine or ritual, or you should have some kind of repertoire that you repeat to yourself, or is it, or all over the place? Is it, is it truly individual? Like some people don't need to embrace that or? I think I always say that 
you shouldn't fix something that's not broken. Like there are naturally talented athletes that are really strong-willed and they just go there, grip it, rip it, and then forget it. Most people are not like that. <laughs> and we can find nuances. Like if someone's going out really stressed from between attempts, then I'll try to work on lowering the arousal level for those five to six minutes where they're resting for the next round and then just going into the flow state in the final minute right before the attempt so they can preserve energy. So you're, you're big on even like intraset, like manipulating like sympathetic and parasympathetic kind of stimulus yeah. to like, oh, go ahead, sorry. Absolutely, so even in intraset, like between breathing through your nose or breathing through your mouth, can different the percentage of sympathetic versus parasympathetic neural functions. So that's a really basic step, but some people keep on hyperventilating in between sets, thus lowering their energy versus breathing through your nose, which will elicit a calm response. Yeah, we see that a lot. We, we have to tell a lot of athletes to sit down, just sit, yeah. just stay there. Just stay still. Mantras, we need the breathing, we need other stimulus, other, uh, other senses involved, I guess. Ammonia. <laughs> Ammonia. <laughs> right. Yeah, it helps. It was my first time trying ammonia this last competition a month ago. And it's oh, yeah. quite, how should I describe it? Punchy or pungent? Yeah. Or, I don't know, but it, it just works. It clears your mind. Yeah. Yeah, I think yeah. it's it's like a very, uh, I guess in psych psychology or in medicine, you call it like an acute intervention, right? Mm -hmm. Kind of like breaks <laughs> that train of thought. It's, just get punched in the face and it's like well it gives you an opportunity to, to take your total concentration because there's this you know noxious stimulus all of a sudden but then you have that moment right afterwards where it's like all right i can tunnel vision my way into what my next objective is like i'm no longer worried about are my shoes tied correctly you know or you know did i not eat enough skittles before my attempt like powerlifters love their candy but it I feel like that's almost like more of the useful tool sometimes of ammonia than getting hyped up that people don't realize that like it's, it's a ritual. It, it's almost a cue in and of itself that like it's go time and it's, it's an immediate stimulus that people, when they smell it, they, you know, it jolts them away from whatever they were doing before and it completely yeah, clears your mind and allows you just like, all right, now I have this momentary flow state that I basically like you've created artificially versus like a lot of people sit there and you know headphones and music for you know 10 minutes or so between a lift yeah but i'm really big on mindfully creating your own flow straight and recreating you it over and over i think that's a really useful skill in any aspect of life even if you're going to present in front of people you have to be in some kind of a flow state or even if you're doing a big lift then you should find your flow and build up on that and there are exercises to really help you with that 
even just as simple as visualizing the best moments of your career as a powerlifter. And if you can just cast or even remember or replay it in your such an event, that can energize important yeah. stuff inside that. And I think that there are many, many, especially female lifters that channel their focus into a physical action, like they clap on their thighs or chest or they yell, like Jen Thompson is a, I think she's a yeah. word coat holder. She always yells before the, her attempt. So I don't think there's a one size fits all in terms of building your ritual, but don't be afraid to test things out and see if how it affects you. If you can find that optimal level of rosa, because if it's too much, like some people don't like to be slapped in the neck or get their ears rubbed because that would distract them. Good thing is that it can be learned and enriched. Like, can we talk about some of the cues of our own flow states? Like, I'm gonna start off with goosebumps. I always know that I'm inside or close to my flow state when I have goosebumps crawling over, starting from my fingers and all the way up to the neck and then it fills my head and then I know I'm ready. Yeah, I think it's important to, this is something I've implemented with a few people, like uh, having them reflect after training on like what were those things that you can identify, like this is when I felt really in the zone. This is when I felt like I knew this was gonna be my best set they executed it because a lot of people, they just, I feel like they look back on a, a training session, like, Oh, this training session was crappy. I didn't feel it. Or I had really great session this whole time. And then they're missing out on their subtleties in between each set and rep that you can almost dial in and say, yeah, you know, when I sat down and I didn't look at Instagram, you know, and I focused on just the next set in front of me and I, you know, just sip some water and listen to one of my favorite songs on repeat. Like, that's a pretty normal thing for a lot of people to get in it, but they don't realize like subtle changes between those different behaviors make all the difference in their performance and accumulating those better quality sets, you know, executed reps. And I think just even coaching an athlete to say, Hey, after your workout, spend 10 minutes, we reflect on your workout, find like those key moments and try and mentally log them. Because pretty much everybody remembers like when they hit their top double, you know, or their top single in the gym. Like, yeah, I felt so great doing this on this day. And so-and-so was there to wrap my knees. Like, they remember all of those. Those are very big wins. But in powerlifting, there's lots of small incremental steps that we take. Like you said, like fives, eights, sixes, right? There are good technique days and bad technique days. And I think an athlete can gain a lot of that, a lot of perspective, but also like you said, like moments to call upon when they are in competition. Like, how do I create a flow state? Well, if you've never actively reflected and found out what your flow state is, or even like recorded moments that you can recall upon for that, and you don't even know what your ritual is, you're just doing it organically. You know, for some people that works, like I don't think sometimes when I watch Craig uh, Foster squat, I don't think he knows anything about what he's doing other than he goes up and down. But then there's other people that I see every minute detail of how they set up, you know, they, they drill in exactly the same. But I think it's a useful exercise for people to like, at least 
ask them to try it, you know, ask them, like start reflecting on that. And a lot of people would find benefit. In touching on two really important points, Sean, and thanks for pointing that out. The first one was that mental PRs are equally as important as gym or physical PRs. And you should really log them. Like even just rate your training session from a one to 10 based on how good you felt about that session. Or just note one mental win, even if that's self-talk or just no distractions or you could nail a cue or a keyword that you've been trying to use. Like I'm always wiggling my elbow during the squad and I always note it as a mental PR when I don't and I can just use my lats. And by rewarding myself with positive feedback, reflection and mindfulness of my actions, it gets easier and easier to just drill that cue. And the second was that by the time you feel ready to do the exercise, you shouldn't think about anything else. Just let your body do the work. Because in the flow state, when you ask athletes how they did what they did, they usually don't have a clue. They just do it automatically. Because mm-hmm. you've been practicing that very moment, that pattern for thousands and thousands of repetitions you should buy them when you're on the platform just trust your body and do the work so you just give all in and see where it goes yeah i I find it interesting because i think that shows also like in different types of coaching like we've all seen there's like the coaches like on meet day that give you know dozens of cues right before a lifter goes up and there's the coaches that are like, just go out there and execute, go kill it. And, and obviously like with novice lifters, like sometimes they need more coaching and cueing. I think there's also a limit to how many cues can somebody hold on to, you know, mentally in the foreground, like, like in psychology, you know, we talk about, you know, being able to hold in short term memory, right? Like, like a phone number is almost the amount, a number of things that somebody can remember. Right. So say what, I'm sorry. Five plus minus two. Yeah, five plus or minus two. Yeah, so people can usually remember only a handful of things in like a list format like that before other things getting pushed out. And so at least what I've implemented with some people is like, it's like meet day, you get like two cues per lift and you do, you cue them in the warmups and you'd cue them before they go out on the platform because once they're out there, like they've got to pay attention to, you know, squat, rack, right, start press rack right uh, they got to pay attention to judges they got to pay attention to what they're doing and so if they have practice and you have coached them well to meet day and done commands before like they should be able to kind of execute without you intervening but again everybody loves to yell up 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 you know push 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 and but at that point those aren't really so much cues as cheers and i think in that moment people don't really have the ability to, you know, cue off of something being yelled at them, do they? Don't really pay attention to them. And I totally agree. My advice is usually three cues max, three yep. or less. Otherwise you'll get, just get overwhelmed with these thoughts, correcting things and implementing cues should be done before the competition, not on midday. Yeah. How do you feel about, 
on meet day when people change cues? Changing cues? Why? Yeah. Why would you? That's my question because I, I try not to, but it's something that I've heard and I've seen people do, you know, when a technique flaw presents on meet day that wasn't there before, you know, if they're warming up and like people start changing cues. I, personally, to me, I think it's more something that's like you just kind of have to roll with the day of. Like, you, you can't really make an intervention successfully on meet day with an athlete like that and decide, hey, I'm going to change all of your form or I'm going to change your technique widely. But, I mean, it happens. Like, you show up on meet day and somebody for the first time ever starts dropping their head, you know, on a squat or, you know, they're flaring elbows on bench early, you know, because they're just overly excited. Um, do you feel like that's something worth changing to, or is that a mindfulness thing? Yeah, I I wouldn't pay much attention to those changes, but I would definitely enforce good technique just by visualizing the lift over and over again between attempts and seeing it as perfect as we've talked about before, as you've practiced, and not focusing on the mistake version. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I think that should definitely have because if you know how you grip the bar, how you go over to the bench or where you look or what are you flexing, then you should concentrate on those and not the faulty parts, even if they appear. So like reinforce positives uh, versus like critiquing negatives in some of those instances? Yeah, even in self-talk, it's really, really important to be affirmative and talk about yourself, like, instead of, oh, I shouldn't drop my hips too low on the deadlift, you should say, like, I have to keep my chest up. And it's the same cue, but sounds quite differently, especially internally. Yeah, I think that's interesting, because also, like, I, I literally, before this call, was just on conference call with like um two of my athletes uh, they're married uh, sam and joe corsi we were talking about her attempts for a meet and like this is something that psychologically like i do with a lot of my lifters when planning attempts like i usually have them not just open conservative but we plan like a b list of attempts right like we say hey start with that on the day of but that in is your initial because it's always better to receive feedback like hey we're gonna open you heavier you're moving better today we're going to go with plan a instead of plan b and then that way like even if you are submitting plan b to start and they're all lower attempts for that day but you've written them out you know successfully like at that point you know there's no negative at least feedback in your process leading up to the platform versus i always used to hate it like when people come to me like oh we need to drop the opener like no we don't the opener stays the same if anything we increase the opener and i think that is rewarding like day of uh and it's like a confirmation of their work but it also prevents them from spiraling um and like losing track of that positive outlook of like this is an opportunity of a meet this isn't something like you're punishing yourself for or you know you're required or forced to do yeah i like this method training and punishment should never go hand in hand so can you define the flow state for us? What, what is the flow state? What is the flow state? Should I live like that? Should I be in that all day, every day? 
would you like to hear a scientific explanation yeah or like a powerlifting type specific flow state i'll see if i can both yeah i guess (laughs) i'll i'll see if i can understand the first one and then we'll see if we need the second one yeah well i i'll try to be as unscientific as possible because we're not in for show we're in for infotainment and educating people but basically you for anyone to be able to achieve the flow state you have to have a certain level of skill and a certain level of challenge and in between the two if you find that sweet spot then you can be in the flow state basically because if the challenge is low and your skill level is also low that will cause apathy that's the one end of the spectrum and the other end of the spectrum if like the challenge is really really high and like your skill level is really low then you'll get anxious you'll get thoughts of fear or being a loser and that will not contribute to being successfully allowed doing a lift or something like that but as far as the flow state goes you have to be confident in your skills and set realistic expectations that will only be like one percent or two percent above your current level but i think that's what good powerlifting coaches usually recommend that like your second or third attempt should be one to two to 2.5 percent of your previous one rep max as a conservative attempt and that will really help you to nail it down. And like I said, the last camp was one of my best because I came home hungry, hungry for more, because I know that I had some left in the tank, but it was still really hard. And when I look back on the videos, like doing that 245 deadlift, internally, it felt really, really difficult, like a 9.75 out of 10 scale but when i look at the videos i see what was that that was like rp8 (laughs) and it wasn't just because i use my ritual i build that up i use music i use visualization and i used some ammonia too that was the (laughs) three main components and i did it and i even yelled at the end because I was so satisfied with myself. And it wasn't 600 kilos or 400 kilos, but I didn't really give a shit because I was in my flow state. You could see that, I could feel that. And the challenge was high because I've never pulled that weight before, but I knew that I could. And I already lifted the weight in my mind before doing the actual attempt. Yeah, it was the perfect balance between skill and challenge. Yeah, for me. And it's in the form of numbers. That's so hard for people to wrap their head around, right? What? I mean, how do I know it's challenging enough? How do I know it's too much of a challenge? Well, we can have it in percentages and numbers for you. I would um, think enough. it's quite objective. <laughs> you yeah. are a number, <laughs> so you can lift it or not. And there are three judges to... Well, we so, we so often see athletes produce an extra, 
I don't know, five, 10% because of the situation they're in, because of the platform, because of the crowd, the environment, you know, we haven't seen anybody that we've coached bomb out. Um, we, we've seen people not do as well as they wanted to at a meet, but man, there's, there's a lot of people that just because of the situation they're in. Wow. That was yeah. fast. Some people have to develop that. Like I've seen many athletes have stage or platform for meet anxiety. And that's definitely a thing you can work on. I, I was there too, because for three or four years, my gym maxes were above the platform or meet maxes because I just felt embarrassed, uncomfortable lifting in front of so many people because I used to train in my home gym and I used to have my own gym in my city that I could close up anytime that I wanted to train. So it was quite strange for me to train and warm up with so many people and get judged by others. But as soon as I worked on it and embraced the excitement and turned the anxiety into excitement, basically, then it was all good. But like I had one athlete that had stage anxiety and we worked on it by just turning the volume up on a pre-recorded meet and just feeling the energy of and the ovation and the atmosphere and sooner or later he could get used to being inside the zone and he only even listened on headphones to noises or sounds that are usual to a powerlifting meet so it was familiar to him the next time that's really cool that's really cool yeah that's insane i hadn't ever thought of that actually of just recording a meet so that somebody that gets anxious at a meet it's like uh what was the study like little Alfred in psychology where they conditioned him to be scared of like a white rabbit and then anything white and fluffy, you know, terrified him for the longest time, but then they had to decondition him to that right afterwards. That's one of the big things they talk about, like with trauma or with uh, the fight or flight responses, you can decondition it to things by basically reintroduction, right? Like the easiest way to get people over is to slowly approximate. And this technique that I used with the previous mentioned athlete is called systematic desensitization. Right. So I systematically increased the amount of pressure that he had from the atmosphere. So by increasing the volume, increasing the types of noises from cheering, applauding, judging, uh, voice commands and stuff and so on and so on. And so when midday came, it was all familiar to him. And honestly, that's almost the exact same thing we do, but with physical training to get ready for a max is uh, we are desensitizing, not necessarily desensitizing, but we are sensitizing ourselves to the approximate one rep max that we're about to do. Like after we've accumulated in that hypertrophy phase, right? And we've accumulated all of this capacity, really the strength adaptation is just sensitizing yourself to uh, microloading, right? Your way up. So that way, come meet day, what was your previous one rep max should feel relatively light uh, compared to when it was your true one rep max. And then that, uh, that subjective threshold of absolute maximum effort is a little higher. So you're able to execute on a slightly stronger weight. And that's where 
I know like particularly when people say they do like the Bulgarian method or they do max effort training regularly, like that's really what's happening when you get stronger for like that first month. And that's why it plateaus. It's because you were probably somebody that was a low skill level with high, higher weights. Um, you sensitized yourself to handling them. So you acquiesced some skill for heavier weights and how your body moves under them and progressively, you know, handled heavier and heavier things. But it's interesting to apply that same concept, like preparing for a meet, preparing even for training. Like you, if it's like making small objective changes in diet uh, or sleep schedule or even your warm-up routine, it's should be, like you said, systematic and you slowly approximate it. Otherwise you end up throwing somebody into like a shock of some kind and then uh, they regress. As we get closer to Battle of the Bay and there's a lot of people doing it, like it's my favorite time. It's my favorite yeah. time in the gym. It, 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 it resembles the meat so much more. Like the training re resembles, or it makes me feel like I feel on that day so much more, you know, the closer we get to it. And almost on a macro scale, say, hey, this is why we go do local meets first. Like we'd go do the simple local meet at somebody's gym, right? We always tell people it's never too soon to compete and get exposure to it, right? And then approximate, okay, we're going to go to a state regional meet, you know, after you've done a couple local meets. All right, now we'll go travel to a meet, you know, a couple hours away. Um, and then eventually, yeah, qualify them for nationals and, and get them there. Whenever I go to the Power Builder HQ gym that my coach is a member of and I train, I always pull PRs. <laughs> Not because it's like some kind of magic, just because from peer pressure, just... Right. Like, people that are have similar objectives and goals as me yeah i think um change of environment like that like knowing that you're going there to see a coach knowing that you're like is also uh it's it escalates right your your mental state it escalates your performance because it's now like a special situation that right? you're giving that that particular environment some like particular credence and saying hey this is i'm going here with a purpose and like to leave without that purpose. So it's like you almost artificially create that challenge with your skill level intersection. So you can almost then more easily access a flow state, even though it may be a normal training day, but you're presenting another stimulus, you know, in your mind that says, Hey, this is an extra challenge or this is an extra special situation and it allows you to access it. Yeah. That, that's why it can benefit many people just to go to another gym from time to time. Just to yeah. see if atmosphere resonates with them, but I unfortunately don't have the the opportunity to train at the same gym. It can help, especially if you're getting closer to the competition. But I can choose between many of them and I know the atmosphere. And like I like to do squat in one gym when in I'm working in one city. And I like to finish up my week with deadlifts in my hometown, usually. And that's yeah. a system. Like, even if you don't have a home gym or a gym that you call your HQ or base, then you can get away with that. And I wanted to reflect on the previous point too, like getting closer to meet and peaking or peaking together. Now, as for someone who is fascinated by the human mind, I really like to look at it as unlocking your potential. 
well, we said desensitizing you, but really it's unlocking your neuro potential more and more just by increasing the load and getting closer and closer, inching towards your one true wrong one red max. Yeah, I think it's interesting too because, um, like from a psychological perspective, yeah, it's like, yeah, you're unlocking or you're accessing something. Um, but it even ties into like biologically speaking, like your action potentials, right, of your nerves, right? The rate coding of being able to force a muscle to twitch increases. And so at the same time that we're making these physical adaptations, like in a local tissue level uh, for people to get stronger or even like, you know, a neuromuscular inner innervation level, if the psychological adaptation isn't there to match it, it's almost useless, right? You can be, you could train and be as strong as you want, but then you go choke on meat day and, you know, fail all three squats because you're nervous or miss a command. Like it's, it's interesting to, to focus on this because it's not something that I think a lot of people do, but one without the other is, you know, going to leave you kind of missing out or wanting for more. Um, and I think it's interesting because we've talked about, some people do really well individually. Some people do really well in groups. Some people do really well, highly stimulated, low stimulated. I think like the takeaway message is really like as a powerlifter, an athlete in general, or like Olympic weightlifter, right? Uh, you need to reflect and find out who, who are you? Take some ownership of that. Say, this is like what works for me. I'm going to actually find out what works for me. I'm not just going to wing it anymore and say, oh, I've, I got to get really hyped for deadlifts. It's like, well, do you always pull PRs when you're hyped on deadlifts? or you sometimes pull a personal record when you're just calm and zen and in that state of just complete focus. And I think maybe some people like yeah. rely on just that too much. Allow or embrace the fact that your attitude can change in between lifts too. Like maybe if you're not the same during a squat as in a deadlift, it's totally natural. Like Bryce Lewis wrote an article they looked at different styles of preparation for different lifters and he talked about workers or dancers aggressors and ninjas and some people just switch between those styles even during lifts in any one condition day and he said that a worker is someone who is like more task oriented, someone who views training and competition as a process of completing a skill and getting it done from beginning to end. And there's no emotional variability, but they're really mindful of how their, does their technique look or my technique look, how's my bar speed, how's my load selection. And they don't stress over high levels of caffeine use and stuff like that. So they just here to execute a skill and they don't use what's not necessary and they don't pay attention to others versus like the aggressor who's really driven by hostility or maybe just pure aggression and coming up with emotionally loaded memories and just hyping themselves up or getting hyped up by slaps and earrugs. Some people are like that and they can get really high in terms of energy, but it will only get them through a lift and then they will go low versus the dancer 
those are the people who have the body language. They're always moving. They're like dancing when setting up sumo deadlifts mostly. And then they just whistle or blow or yell if they can, but they are energetic all the way through. And there are the ninjas who are really focused on the inside and they're getting huge like responses as a dialogue within themselves. And so they're talking mostly to themselves, but from the outside, they're looking like real calm, real zen, and just executing the lift perfectly and without seeing emotions or without stressing over the details. It's funny, like when you're talking about that, I can think of like individual lifters I coach that fall into each category, like for all of those that like, I could definitely view Shane Holler as like, he's kind of a, an aggressor. Like he comes out and it's like, I'm going to F this weight up, like go time. Right. And like rattle the bar, like he yells and gets loud and, Craig is definitely uh, a dancer. He's just hype and kind of bobs back and forth. He's got his music going. And yeah. And then, uh, man, like mechanics, like quite a few. I think maybe it's maybe the style of coaching, but like I can think of like Joe Corsi or Andrea King, like them, like they come in and they just dial in and like even their daily lives are very structured, regimented, like, I mean, all four of them that I've mentioned so far are, but to the point of like, you know, I go at this time to do this. I always train at this time. Like I have school, I have work. And then the ninjas, the ninjas always scare me. You talk like, cause you never, I feel like as a coach, they're hard to read to know how they're doing. They're, um, they're yeah. Like silent killers, man. Uh, they just go out there and they grip it and rip it. Um, I, I, think it's also important because i know we've talked about that briefly before but like people can also be like a blend like you said like and in between different lifts like personally myself like i know when it comes to like squat i'm very much like a mechanic uh i I want it to be perfect i have my exact setup and drill bench i don't care about i don't like bench uh i I think bench is a stupid lift so i'm probably more of like a uh maybe a ninja or a dancer there i just like i don't really care i'm like doing what I'm doing, but I'm also just calm and just like, all right, we're going to go through this. Uh, but then deadlift, it's definitely like aggression time. It's push the world away. You know, that's interesting. I didn't think of it as a blend depending on the exercise or the task at hand. I thought like dancing ninja just in general, like I'm a dancing ninja throughout. Um, those are t- two hard ones to blend together. No like you're, you're a dancer and a ninja so why not yeah you're just nimbly bimbly you're just a real <laughs> agile kind of guy that's my yeah. archetype i'm a nimbly bimbly yeah, like i've said <laughs> <laughs> sorry <laughs> i am a nimbly bimbly like, oh what weight class are you in nimbly bimbly <laughs> i think that the root of this typology comes from personality types too like an extroverted people cannot be a real ninja but introvert will gravitate towards either a worker or a ninja probably have you ever looked in to see if like the myers-briggs like personality tests they've done like enfj infp like all the you know four-letter combinations do you have you ever like 
had any of your athletes or people you work with ever actually take that and see maybe they which ones they fall into even just like correlative not really but that would be a nice phd thesis hypothesis <laughs> identifying lifter types and myers-briggs typology for letters yeah like, uh, i know that we've broken down that myers-briggs is not the end-all be-all and i mean there's much more nuance to each one of the classifications but i think that'd be interesting because that's a very not objective but like categorical metric like you can bucket people into and then to see how that correlates with their rituals and their uh routines when they're lifting even just outside of lifting like how does lifting fit into their home how does the life of an athlete fit into like the life of a human you know is a lot of times they're very two-faced or you know bifurcated in that way I'm intrigued to find out. Maybe next time I go to your place, I have some sample of data to show the different personality types and their rituals. Yeah. But I, I always ask people what they do before, during, and after lift, because by that I can usually identify the areas that need work or could use some work to, like before going to the competition, some people feel anxiety or just they feel anxious about how well they're gonna perform and you can strengthen that by giving up good memories of either competitions or training session some people only start to get excited when it's time to warm up and that can be okay if they don't lose energy by the time then it's real go time like first attempt or second attempt and you can work on either relaxation or just energy conservating techniques. Some people only <laughs> remember their mistakes and there's a short-term phobia technique to correct that, which is basically just imagining yourself inside a cinema type room or, and just replaying the perfect motion and giving a 360 view of that either slowing it down or speeding it up and whenever you're ready with the fixed motion then you just replay it in real time over and over so you can visualize it better i love visualizing different for everyone you have to know where you're grabbing the bar where you're looking at how you're breathing how planted your feet are or what your arch is so whenever we talk about visualization you have to know that it's highly individualized and the more you practice it the shorter it becomes like a good visualization of a deadlift should not last more than 10 to 15 seconds right before a lift but if you practice it for the first few times it can be as long as a minute or so i have a weird I one I have a weird one that I do. I like to visualize jumping into a cold pool. Sean, <laughs> remember when we lived in St. Pete? It has nothing to do with the technique or completing the lift, but the same idea with the ammonia, right? To get you to a starting point, reset button. I, I would jump in that cold pool in St. Pete daily. Yeah, I remember that. Like, I remember us talking about that and how uh, Dmitry Klokov used to like 
jump in like a cold well behind his house every day. His dad would make him. It's like, if you can't jump in a cold water, you can't be an Olympic champion. I'm like, oh, oh, Lord. But I would take my mind there uh, because it was such an intense physical stimulus. It was really easy to visualize and get there that moment before your body hits the pool. You've d- There's nothing else you can do. This is happening to you right now. Um, so I like to take a big breath, literally visualize myself jumping off of the edge of the deck of the pool in that moment, right before you hit the pool, there's no turning back. Right. I like, I feel like that's almost like cathartic. It's like mm -hmm. you're visualizing letting go of whatever might be holding you back from the actual lift. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good visualization. One, because it's a shock to your system and two because you remember it so well and there's so many physical sensations that go through your body when you're emerging yourself into cold water like you feel it from head to toe you feel your heart you feel your arteries and capillaries that's really an awesome way to start off your day for example have to have you sensing your surroundings and your body as well like what are you smelling what are you seeing what are you feeling and when where are you feeling it how the knurling on the bar is cutting into your hands and what do you feel when you make a fist for example those can be real sensations to focus on the lift for you they really do, do help and there's exercises you can do to practice. 10 minutes every day should do the trick for anyone. So it's not like a whole workout for mental preparation. You just pick one or two trouble areas and then focus on that for three to four weeks before competition. So it can have a chance to get built up into your ritual. And David's going to record some of these exercises, right? To link them here with the podcast. So uh, it's going to help everybody out. I believe uh, it. I will have some exercises ready for you. In turn. So if you have problems with anxiety, I'm going to show two relaxation exercises too. If you're, if you want to perfect your or access your flow state better then I'm, I'm going to show an exercise for that too. If you want to perfect your technique, on any of your lifts, on any time of the day you want. I'm gonna show some stuff for that. And that really helps if you have a situation like COVID and studies show that if you're visualizing something, it can regenerate your force production better than doing nothing. So like, it can really help you nail down your technique even if you're not training. I think the most of the studies were done on burn victims, so athletes who had been touched by flames and the poor souls were in the hospital and they tried to have them do visualizing their lifts or their sporting activity like cycling or running. And they found that those people who visualized that, uh, they could return uh, two to three weeks sooner than those who did not do their given chosen sport. So that's huge. Yeah, I know that there's been even um, 
there's been studies on visual aid. I don't have like obviously a citation or this right now, but that even for athletes not in sport practice, right? They did it on I've done it like with volleyball teams, I believe. Um that they separate them into, you know, those that practice, those that practice and visualize, those that just visualize, and those that don't practice at all. And they found that basically, like, in the middle, like, visualizing helps, obviously, with practicing. They come out the highest level of success. But even still, those with that just practiced and those that just visualized in short-term, short timelines get about the same effect out of it as long as it's not long enough to actually separate them from sport, like for atrophy or something like that. Like the actual skill acquisition and completion of it is maintained. If it's a short enough interval, if they can just visualize, even if they can't practice. Yeah. And humans are mimicking creatures. So even if you see someone who's roughly the same height and size as you, executing the lift perfectly that can help in your skill acquisition as well so even i do think it's interesting when you say like but mention the mimicking thing look at now what we do with instagram like most people's favorite lifter is somebody that is probably has similar leverage or is they identify with in some way right and they start mimicking them like uh i'm gonna call out one of my guys that he loves john hack and I've started calling him mini John hack to uh, rile him up because he, he just, you know, loves it. And he's, he's, he's about the same, like built the same kind of lanky skinnier guy, but you know, well-built and his lift distribution is similar as far as like discrepancy between squat and deadlift and his, you know, bench. Uh, we used to, we used to always kind of make fun of or tease people for idolizing people, you know, right. Say, Oh, just do it for yourself. But like, that's a, it's a use, useful visualization. Yeah, it can be a useful thing. Good coaching goes, we should strive to allow athletes to find themselves throughout the journey. But some point, at some point towards that, having an idol can be beneficial. If they yeah. if contribute to them finding themselves. Bryce Lewis. <laughs> yeah. I just want to be Dan Green. <laughs> How do I get that huge? You just keep thinking about him. Keep oh, I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, just touching up a little bit more about having a ritual or not. There are two studies, one, I think, a Canadian and one uh, an American. And they separated people into three groups and tested that there was a significant difference in visualizing or not visualizing or just doing their regular psych routine. And if they did nothing, of course, they, their lifts did not improve from one rep to the other rep, even with rest in between. And if they did their regular psych if they did it for at least three months prior and they always did the same whatever it was then it improved their lifts by 10 percent and if they had them do listen to a visualization track and do that then for squad it was 18 percent difference so it was significantly better than the first rep at any given weight and for bench press it was 15 percent 
difference, so plus five compared to just their regular psychab. So it was a real eye-opener for me that even if you do not use visualization per se, but you have a ritual and you're sticking to it for month and month and month, that will help. And if you perfect your technique through visualization and you know exactly how emotional you have to be to execute that lift perfectly, that can be even better. But this was measured by EMG on their neck and chest and straps around their quadriceps too. So, And I think they measured bar speed velocity too. So it was quite scientific. I think yeah, one, one was Todd and colleagues in 2005 and the other was Alexander and colleagues in 2019. So that's quite recent if someone wants to look that. I'm going to read those now. It's interesting that like the further on that science gets with athletes and training, it's like, cause some of this, obviously like we're, we're, we're measuring all of these things about people, right? Like you mentioned like EMG measurement, like, yeah, there's some dispute in some circles about how accurate that is for certain things, but like we are measuring it. And so if there's an impact, we should be able to see repeatability in that. Right. But there's so many more factors now that we're, starting to access about people that before like and i see this in a lot of you know beginners you know they're following a coach's program that's just you know all right here do your sets of five add five pounds yeah. you do this and it's like it's so focused on solely just the rep scheme and percentages which like i'm guilty of it like i i write people's programs i coach them but like there's a lot more of an art form that's coming out with some of the science of being able to access like you know, how do I psychologically manage my athletes? How do I, you know, manipulate diet and sleep variables for them? How do I, because a lot of that, we can't control what they eat exactly. Can't control when they go to bed, but, you know, just like anything else, as a coach, you're a stimulus to them. You're kind of conditioning them. Pavlov's dog, you know, or approximating behaviors, right? It's It's like training a dog to sit on command, but also, it's more like a human, uh, go to bed on time, <laughs> drink your gallon of water, right? Don't stay up watching cartoons all night before your, your meat, you know? And, uh, I think this kind of opens a big can of worms for a lot of people because the amount of individual variation, you know, of each individual that you're coaching multiplied by the individual variation of each coach versus like individual variation of, uh, you know, meet day differences, training differences, you know, people's routines, like there isn't now an infinite number of variables that we could theoretically consider and manipulate. When do you think it's like, how would you recommend people start picking like one thing that they can start to manipulate or they can just focus in like, I'm going to in the next two weeks, you know, this is how I'm even going to come to the conclusion of what I would start with, you know, in order to do that. Hmm. I think training logs are overlooked. It comes down to two things mostly, if we want to be real basic. Quality of coaching times execution. If one of them is zero, then it will be zero. So we have to know and be real critical about ourselves as coaches too and be 
just judgmental but also honest or and uh, well asking for honesty from our athletes too so if they're not regularly logging their lifts inside their training log we cannot really help them but if the training is good i think that's the base because that's the thing that you have real control over the volume the sets the intensity and if that's okay, then we can move up to nutrition because that's the second most important in terms of performance and then sleep and then water intake and just one by one. I think what you said, Sean, like the two-week mark should be enough to have enough data of that particular subject to see if it's heading in the right direction or not. So I would just filter out stuff and get as many coaches do videos and then training logs and then some nutrition logs at least for two weeks and then some sleep logs and then some water logs and if everything goes well then the only thing left to check is inside their mind usually mm -hmm. yeah I, I think though too you could it's like a almost a chicken or the egg because if their mind isn't in the right place and the capacity to do a lot of those things like if they can't stay task management wise on top of like, oh, I do need to be motivated or in control mentally enough to go ahead and write things down. And then to remember to eat, you know, like people, I don't want to say like attention deficit disorder, but I, I call it more like executive order thinking, thinking like, does this person have a great executive faculty to make firm decisions? Like I'm going to go do this. I'm going to go do this. I'm going to do them in this way. It doesn't have to mean that you're some logical you know, philosopher, something like that. But like, are you in control enough of your thoughts to be like, all right, I am going to at least start tracking protein this week. And I'm going to then start tracking carbs. I'll, I'll now track my diet in an app. Like, are you in control enough to do that? And I think that's an important threshold that a lot of people got to get over initially before even like, if you're coming to me as a coach or anyone as a coach, if you can't, get over that minimum threshold of at least holding yourself to that standard of, of prioritizing, planning, organizing, you know, all the coaching and programming in the world isn't going to do anything for you. Coming from another perspective, training is a part of life, but it's not life all in itself. So there are right. other life factors that you have to, take in when even designing a program for someone because if they had the capacity to do like i don't know four times a week squatting on their previous cycle coming to the meet and they got married and have a kid then it's not the same as it was before so you have to yeah. factor in and for some people it's best to judge their readiness to change when designing a new training program if there was any life changes or motivational changes or joint aches or how they feel about training how motivated they are and because like you said it will affect all the other factors and their execution and i think i mean that's something that we just started implementing is like questionnaires like with the new app that we're beginning ready to drop is like having actual athlete questionnaires that they can answer. Um, Cause if you're managing a high number of athletes, 
yeah, you can have a 15 minute conversation with somebody and kind of get up to date, but like also at the same time, like there's no consistency to that. Like how, like how do you hold your coaching accountable to the results you're yielding with people? If you don't have a, at least a method, you know, having a friendly conversation is great, but having bullet points and boxes to check and an organization to that, I think makes an impact, right? Just like we're asking athletes to go in and check boxes of do your five sets of eight, do your, you know, do your lunges, do your stretching, you know, but as a coach, if you're not accountable with a system similarly to provide that to them, it's almost like ineffective or you're missing out on that 1% you can pull out of your athlete of extra performance because you're missing that in the initial triage as far as getting all of their variables down. It's nice how we're going to be able to just peer into their dashboard um, and just look at their averages for all of their responses through a, a training cycle or a block. Um, you know, we're going to be asking how they sleep, but we're going to be tracking it if they have Apple Health Kit as well. How do they feel? Essentially, do you feel recovered? What's your mood like? Good mood, and then we can, you know, pull averages. As far as training other people goes, friendship is a nice side effect, but it cannot be the end goal because at the end of the day, optimally, both sides are there for results and you cannot have results by not being objective, even with your data or with yourself, with the athlete. So it's nice if you're friends, but it's not a necessity. Yeah, and I think that's a, a, a clear distinction that has to be made a lot of times. Like. There are definitely athletes of mine that I've become friends with and hold relationships with, but like we also will like, for instance, communicate on different platforms about different things. Like, Hey, texting with videos is how we are going to communicate about uh, your performance, about your program, Instagram, Facebook, social media is all fun. And it's just the, the friend thing. Right. Um, and so being able to make like a clear kind of line in the sand psychologically, like, Hey, when we go out to eat, you know, or have a beer, like that's friend time. Let's not talk about the gym, stuff like that. And I think having that distinction, even just as a, a powerlifter that's friends with other powerlifters, you know, an athlete that's friends with other athletes and coaches, because these are very, you know, I hate to use the word incestuous, but like the intermingled and interlayered and complex social circles, you know, from a social psychology standpoint, you have coaches interacting with coaches and athletes at all different levels. You have athletes coaching athletes that have some kind of dynamic, but to be able to set some of that aside regularly, it's like, Hey, we're going to go out and just exist as people outside of this sport and gain some perspective, you know, have something that's outside of just weight on the bar that adds value to you and your relationships, I think is important. And that's something a lot of people miss out on. And then they go through psychological burnout of, all I ever do all day is talk about lifting. All I ever do is lift weights. I'm just tired. I want to go play Frisbee golf for the rest mm -hmm. of my life and just let go, you know? So I think that's a management process that we've got to acknowledge. It's easier to get burned out now than ever. So setting boundaries is always a good option. You can loosen them up mindfully from time to time, but setting them right from the start I think that's necessary. Yeah. To some extent. Where where you're sending the videos, when are we talking? From what about when are we checking in? 
if we're having a beer, we're not talking about him because that's a whole other interaction. Yeah. That will keep your mental health up. I think that's, that benefits both the athlete and the coach. I think this is going to be good. I think I learned some stuff today. Again, <laughs> some of it from the seminar, but then, so there's definitely some uh, key insights I think people are going to enjoy. And I'm going to direct our athletes to listen to it for sure. Like not just because I want them to hear my voice more. <laughs> you know, I wish every athlete at our gym went to that seminar, to be honest. Well, we can do another one if you'd like to do it sometime sooner or later. But you will have the recordings of the exercises more than what was presented inside the seminar. So I think there was only two or three because time only allowed that. But I'm going to upload at least four or five now. So okay. everyone. And we can even do some worksheets like if you know there's gonna be a meet coming up just let me know at least a month before so i can just prepare some pdfs on directing people to the right exercise to choose like an algorithm if you have problem with that then choose this exercise if you okay with that but not with that then choose this one and update it regularly yeah definitely some really good information I think the, the, the biggest takeaway on this whole thing I've gotten from people is like, this is not something that you hear about a lot. Like you do hear people about like, oh, I visualized my success and this and that, but, but how nobody you, speaks. How do you do that? How do like the high level athletes do this? And some people like talk about their success doing it, but how does someone go from, you know, their first day walking into a powerlifting gym or, you know, finding powerlifting on YouTube or Instagram be like, I want to do that. How do you then implement, you know, not just training, that's the easy stuff to find on the internet. Reddit can give you Excel templates for how to get stronger, but how do you get that athlete mindset, particularly since so many people are untrained nowadays, like physical education in America particularly is pretty poor. Like most people that are getting into powerlifting or Olympic weightlifting or uh, are doing so in their mid to late 20s and don't have much of an athletic background. And the, and the ones that do are the ones that are usually the top end of the sport because they were already athletes when they started straight, training, particularly for strength. But even most of them don't have any concept of psychological management. You know, they just know eat more, sleep more, you know, train harder, and then quit bitching about it. <laughs> there's, so, there's so much more nuance. And... Uh, think it'll be real eye-opening cool my main goal is to educate coaches to be better coaches and focus on the psychological aspects of that particular sport and my ultimate aim is to do a phd in sport psychology from powerlifting because i want to know that the things i teach during my courses like visualization really do affect for example bar speed as much and there are some really good velocity based measurements and we can take them into account and just listen to the visualization exercise and i want to know if it's better for novices or intermediate to elite level lifters i'm really intrigued by that 
So is that your your current thesis right now? Is uh, like how visualization can affect like bar velocity and absolute force or power output? Yeah, you thinking that's where you're going. Yeah, that's where it's going. Okay. I haven't officially started it, but I will, and I'm counting on you for sample too. <laughs> oh yeah, we can do velocity tracking, and the yeah, the uh, app will track that. You can. Uh, like any like those one rep uh, or push or any of those like wearables and um, that other what was it? open barbell was the one I had from squats and science. Like you can track your velocity with your sets in the app. So if you, right you can now, definitely really accessible, even with apps, but of course with real devices, it's more accurate, but yeah, we'll you have we'll... to use like a, uh, what is it? A tendometer like they use in exercise science, uh, actual string that pulls and, um, yeah, when you're ready, let us know. We'll get uh, some release forms signed for everybody to, you know, get their data published and we'll put them all through it. We'll see, but it would be really nice to see this in action. Yeah, I yeah. agree. I can't wait to catch up again, man. This is, this is, this is awesome. Don't be a stranger. I mean, I know it's far away, but yeah. Sure. What time is it right now there? Uh, it's uh, almost 9 p.m. I was going to say, I know it has to be like nighttime because uh, you're like, I just went and got coffee. I'm like, is he getting coffee before bed or getting <laughs> coffee because he just woke up? And I'm like, uh, six hours of difference. Six hours. Yeah, so right, right now it's 9 p.m. So around 9 I don't know if others will hear through my accent or not, but I hope you'll manage. It makes you interesting. <laughs> it gives you a authority. The accent gives you authority. I should have used my Russian accent to make it more interesting. More interesting. <laughs> Just added 10 kilos to all your lifts by being Just Russian. All right, David. I'll, I'll, we'll talk to you later, man. Yeah, we'll talk to you again. Nice Saturday and wish me good night. <laughs> yeah, good. <laughs> yeah, good night. Get some good rest. Good night, man. We'll talk to you later. All right.